on this episode of The James Quandall Show. I'm amazed at what she accomplished on the little finances that she had available to her. Just been extremely grateful to grow up and to be able to watch that, but also to participate in it in terms of learning the value of a dollar and value of hard work and the value of faith. Today's guest is my friend Tim Bishop. Tim is a chess expert, investor, and author of multiple books, including Wheels of Wisdom and Hedging Demystified. In this episode, we discussed what it is like to get married after being single for 50 years and how, as a newlywed, Tim embarked on a 3,000-plus-mile bike tour. Talk about getting to know your spouse on a honeymoon. We also talked about chess, writing books, taking adventures, connecting with others, and how it's important to spend time in solitude, reflecting on those small desires and goals that may have been with us since childhood. Please enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed getting to know Tim. Before we started recording, we were sort of talking about some of your adventures. I would put you in a bucket as a modern-day adventurer, and I'm curious if you would define yourself as an adventurer. That's an interesting question because I've probably been pulled into that bucket by my wife, Debbie. You know, I I do like to explore new places for sure, but I'm a cautious person by nature. And Debbie is way out there. She's a skier, you know, thrill seeker, and just loves activity and adventure. So when Debbie and I decided to marry, we were both single until age 52. And I proposed to Debbie the night before I had a luncheon for to celebrate my quote-unquote retirement from a company I'd worked for for 26 years. And after she said, yes, I'll marry you. I asked her a few minutes thereafter, what do you think about bicycling across America? She said, really? I love that. You know, I I had the, she has summers off. She's a school teacher. And I didn't know what my next uh, life was going to bring me after leaving that uh, career in corporate finance. So we did exactly that. We uh, married in April. And so we had to plan a wedding, a long distance bicycle tour. Neither of us had ever toured by bicycle. And your 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 definition of a of a bicycle tour, we'll get to that in a second because it's absolutely insane. And I would put it on the level of scaling Mount Everest as far as extreme uh, endeavors. But I am curious. You talked about your retirement after twenty six years. Why 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 did you retire? Well, there were kind of a convergence of events that happened at that company and I really sensed that God was had something else for me. It was clear that I was kind of being moved into a different direction than what I had been in. And it just seemed like from a personal growth standpoint, I needed to move on. It took a while for that to Mm -hmm. unfold, probably three years. And uh, so, yeah, so I ended up leaving that company. Uh, Debbie, this all kind of converged with a long distance relationship with Debbie. I lived in Maine. She lived in Massachusetts. So once we tied the knot, I moved to Massachusetts. I'd lived in Maine almost all of my life. And so that was an adventure in and of itself. There's there's an adventure number two. Yeah. Did, did, did your employer find it surprising that you were leaving or did they understand? Uh, I think they did understand in the end. It was, you know, they wanted me to stay in a different kind of a different capacity than what I had been doing uh, and certainly where I was headed within the organization. Mm -hmm. And what was that? What kind of work were you doing? What was Uh, your specialty? I was a treasurer at a company that was, it was a privately held company in Maine. We had presence in Northern New England. It was a heating oil distributor and we had significant real estate holdings, some of which were up and down the East Coast of the United States. So I was pretty involved. I, I was trading 
futures, uh, hedging, you know, heating oil risk on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I was the company's treasurer, so I was managing cash and supervising a staff that normally you'd expect a CFO to supervise, you know, IT department, internal audit, accounting department. Uh, so it was a very, it was a job that I grew into. It was offered a lot of opportunity, a lot of learning. I mean, it was, it was an awesome experience, but that experience mm-hmm. came to an end and God had something else. That's, uh, I was just thinking, doing that type of work, the amount of research and studying and learning that you had to keep up with in order to stay sharp and not fall behind. So that that must have been a lot of what you did was just kept reading material. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of that for sure. But it was really, uh, it was a lot of problem solving in business and uh, financial end. I was in a position with, you know, dealing with a commodity that had a lot of price risk, uh, being creative about how to protect the company's risk, how to maximize opportunities that the market presented. Uh, So yeah, it was just it was very interesting. I mean, I started uh, kind of my ticket into that organization was doing income tax returns, which really didn't thrill me. But once I got into the company, they set up PC, and that's what they were called back then. I mean, I, that's how old I am. The, the first IBM PC, dual floppy drive, they set that on a desk in an office that I was sitting in. And I learned using spreadsheets from the ground up. And was that MS-DOS then? It was MS-DOS. It was Lotus 123. Uh, I eventually became very well versed in Lotus Symphony, and I started writing applications for the companies. Like we had an oil front uh, terminal or an ocean front terminal, oil terminal. And so I wrote a program to manage the flow of product in and out of that terminal. I wrote a fixed asset accounting package, uh, all sorts of budgeting programs that we you know, used to share with the managers that they could actually do their own budgets with. So it was all real kind of groundbreaking stuff, but it was all, you know, <laughs> kind of hacker, uh, hacker 101 material. And But it, it worked well and, and was used for many, many years, a couple decades in some cases. So I'm sure that they, they replaced, you know, MS-DOS, and I'm familiar with all of this because I nerded out in the uh, 90s and 2000s and and learned a lot of this. But it started with MS-DOS and then went to Windows 3.1 and then I think Windows 95 or 98. And <laughs> so it would have been... memories. <laughs> it would have been interesting. They were still using your software and were on Windows... I mean, the worst of them was Windows 2000, I think. That was the one that broke everything. But um, that just shows that what you created was was extremely useful for them. And I'm curious, we talk about personal finance on this show a lot. I'm curious what you learned there that you brought into your own personal finances. Like, was there anything that you you, you brought home? Oh, big time. I mean, I learned a lot about, you know, just working in the realm of futures and options. I learned a lot about the investment uh, world, how options are priced, how to manage risk. I've actually written a book called Hedging Demystified, How to mm. Balance Risk and Protect Profit. And that's actually designed for people who are in business and marketies that can be hedged with derivatives. So, yeah, there's a lot of useful information that applies over to just an individual's personal investments. Yeah, it's, it was all good. And it was all, I mean, it was 
to be able to create and use an analytical mind that God gave me to, to also be creative, it was, it was a great place to do it. You created your own career, basically. You charted, you, you, there wasn't some chart that said, hey, here's the, the path you're going to take in this organization. You basically created all of your own opportunities. And to me, that's the true secret to happiness in the workplace is actually going where your heart is leading you and where God is leading you and, and, and sometimes creating your own job or creating your own opportunity that fits those needs. And, and I had a boss. I mean, it wouldn't have happened without the boss. I had. He recognized the gifts that I had, was willing to invest. I mean, he gave me a lot of rope. He, he was in charge of the IT department. And when I started building these PC-based applications, you know, they're uh, kind of up in arms, you know, concerned they'd have to support them and yada, 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 and infringing on, you know, their turf. So uh, he, he just embraced what I brought and encouraged me along the way and gave me opportunity. So I'm extremely thankful uh, for not just him, but the company as well. Obviously, the company had to endorse it. And uh, it, it is a great company. And it was a great experience. Mm -hmm. And before we get into your modern adventures, I'm curious, after retirement, where were you led? Or are you still figuring that out? Well, you know, my relationship with Debbie was long distance while I was kind of winding down at work. And I was really wondering, God, what's the next chapter? And I was trying to sort out, you know, a long distance relationship. That's, you know, those aren't for the faint of heart. It's not easy to figure out, you know, how is this going to work if we're together 24-7 rather than seeing one another once every other weekend, emailing and talking on the phone. So... Uh, you know, there was a lot of balls in the air, but it was very clear that God was moving. He was moving me on multiple fronts. So it was more a step of faith to say, okay, I, I see what you're doing. <laughs> I'll follow the, the steps you're leading me, but I'll trust you for what's behind that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was able to, Debbie and I were both single until then. And they, at this company, compensated me well. So I was able to save enough money to have some cushion that I could do that sort of thing, leave it open-ended. And I'd always always had an interest in writing. Uh, I did a lot of writing, actually, in my job. We'd write ports for board of directors. My boss was actually located in a different office hours away. So we were constantly... So, <clears throat> so to develop that interest more, now that was something that if, if I left that job, that would be one area that I would look in. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, uh, after Debbie and I married and we took our journey across the country in 2010, that winter, I developed a blood clot in my leg. I mean, I, you come back from a long distance bike ride, you're in the best shape of your life. And can you, and just backing up for one second, I want to hear about this, uh, the blood clot. And, and But I am curious, can you tell us, I know about the story of the, the ride, but what, what do you mean by a long bike ride? Is that like 100 miles? Like, what's a long bike ride to you? Well, this bike ride was 63 days, averaging 67 miles a day. So in total... That sounds like 2,000 plus miles. 3,500. <laughs> so, so that's not just a... That's not a bike ride. That's more like a, a, a bike... Uh, 
I don't not even a marathon is not even a word. I don't I don't know how would you de- how do you define that to people when you're like, "Oh, I went on a bike trek or yeah. a trip or what what well, do you it's, say?" It's a bicycle tour and uh but it's a it's a multi-month tour. So you're you're traveling. You know, that's kind of become I moved out of one job and moved to another because when you get into a touring kind of mindset, you have certain things you have to do every day and you're cycling, you know, 5 or 6 hours a day and you may be out on the road 10 or 12 hours uh, to get those five or six hours of cycling. And when you're done, you know, we were blogging along the way to let people know, you know, where we were, how things were going, taking photos, uploading those, uh, cleaning shorts and jerseys and socks and whatnot so we didn't develop saddle sores and replenishing water supplies and freezing the bottles the night before and had an accommodation where we could do that. Uh, If we camped, we were pitching a tent and making meals and so it was it's pretty involved but it was exciting it was just what a way to see the country i'd never been west of the mississippi (laughs) oh wow so this was all new territory for you did you have a favorite state on the montana i mean oregon is has a great diversity uh but mont to me montana was just awesome but when you were in Montana, people were telling you, hey, you need to leave Montana and go to the Dakotas. It's not safe here for people like you. <laughs> it's <is> true. <laughs> Why did they say that? And did you agree with that at all? Uh, uh, there were two elements of risk that were particularly concerning <laughs> in Montana. One was m- my perception of being out in the wild. I'm not an outdoors person. You know, I didn't uh, do a lot of, I did some fishing as a as a young boy with the neighbor's family, but, and I did no hunting, so I'm really not an outdoors person. I'm more of a, a sports junkie type, or had been for sure. So, uh, you know, there's grizzly bears up in the Northwest. <laughs> Yeah, they they can't run faster than a bike, though, can they? I mean, why are you so afraid of them? <laughs> they can do about anything that you can, including you know climbing trees and uh, opening your panniers, and I mean, <laughs> you name it. So I kind of had that in the back of my head, and uh, hearing stories from people and whatnot. And then the other risk was when we uh, kind of went out of the real heavily forested area and moved toward the plains, Montana. We went to Great Falls. And at that point, it's pretty wide open. We go to this church Sunday. <laughs> the people there asked us, where are you going? Which which way are you heading? And they were warning us about uh, actually Indian reservations, uh, specifically gangs on those reservations. Uh, these are young people that had a reputation of, you know, there's just a lot of alcohol and drug abuse and they would run in gangs and you know create all sorts of problems so that that kind of got on our radar and so i ended up mapping out days you know it took four or five days to get out and montana is a pretty big state i can't remember how many miles it is across but it's 500 600 i mean it just goes on and on and on so i mapped out like five days 60 miles 70 miles to get us to motels to be able to get out of the state. And we came, when we came, the day we approached the epicenter of the activity, the reservation where they 
alleged that there was a lot of gang activity, that we should be careful. We stopped at a convenience store uh, outside of that area, and a Native American woman came into this store while we were talking or eating or something. She came she came out of the store. We were sitting there getting ready to get back on our bicycle, and she came over to us, and she said, where are you going tonight? And we explained, well, we have a reservation booked at this motel. She nodded and she said, okay, you go right straight to that motel and don't leave it until the next morning and get right out of town. You'll be okay if you do that. She said, whatever you do, don't go into the town. This this was out, you know, this is kind of on a thoroughfare outside of the town. So we did as she says, but as we approached that area, oh boy, you could feel it. You could just feel it. And as you looked around at the dilapidated buildings and the graffiti and the junkyard that had a horse in there <laughs> tethered up to a, a door, you know, dogs running around barking. And I mean, it just, it just, you could just feel the spiritual darkness. Board, mm. uh, churches boarded up with graffiti. So it, it was kind of heartbreaking to tell you the truth, but we left the next morning as she described and it was, it was fine. How did that compare to some of your fears further in on the journey and and some of the inner cities of in Philadelphia and 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 whatnot? Was it similar in any way, or did it feel completely different? Uh, I would say the only thing that would compare to that was when we came out the backside of Cleveland. We bike well, Cleveland. That's we, right. We okay, right mm-hmm. through downtown Cleveland. We took a day off and went in, took a bus in, visited the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and kind of walked along the shoreline. But going into Cleveland, we had been warned by a cyclist west of Cleveland about certain areas that we shouldn't go east of Cleveland. I said, oh, oh why? He said, well, there's just places you shouldn't go. <laughs> we didn't get any specifics about it. Uh, so anyway, we, we had we were using maps that were published by Adventure Cycling Association. They're a nonprofit advocate for bicycle touring in America. And they're turn by turn. So we felt like, well, we're going to follow the map. If we don't follow the map, we may be in more trouble. You know, we get in areas we really don't don't have a way to get out of. So uh, so anyway, when the next day when we went through downtown Cleveland and headed out the other side, it was extremely striking. There was this very posh neighborhood we went through after we went through this industrial park, these mansions. Everything was fenced in and gated up. And, you know, I mean, there must have been athletes and business moguls and people in entertainment living in those areas that could afford those places. When we left that borough, there was a gate, another fenced in type thing. We left that gate and it was so striking, the poverty that we saw and just mm-hmm. the banged up vehicles and the, even the roadway was it was totally dis, in disrepair. Now went on for miles and uh, we didn't stop there. <laughs> we kept going. <laughs> and uh, you know, finally we, we came through it, but it was just, again, it, we weren't, we didn't feel like anybody didn't approach us. We didn't feel we were in danger that it was a feeling of spiritual darkness, or maybe just the poverty, the abject poverty gave you this feeling that just all is not well here. <clears throat> and it's in our own back. So these are two places in our own country. And we we hear of these mission trips to uh, places in Africa and the poverty and, 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 and sort of the same description of something's just missing. It's not um, spiritually... Full maybe there, and this is 
these are main roads and main cities in some in sometimes here and you you went right through the country so did you see that in a, other places besides here in Ohio and here in Montana like did you did you notice that we have a lot of places like that here in in our country uh, a lot of the areas that we went through were I mean the, the route was designed to be more r- rural and bring it a nice scenery and whatnot. But yes, I mean, we, we ran through, you know, when you're touring by bicycle, you go through a lot of small towns and a lot of them are, I mean, some of them are virtually ghost towns. So you get a sense of, wow, at some point in time, this town was really something that mm. you can see now. So nobody left and it's falling apart. So those things are sad. We also went through uh, downtown Buffalo and certain, there was a certain stretch as we approached the city that again was kind of felt sketchy you know the housing and some of the you might hear shouting and, <laughs> and whatnot you know as you're going through it's just you know for a guy that grew up in a small isolated town in northern maine it was uh, it was an education and so so we're going back to what we were talking about so you're on this this tour and now uh, folks are understanding the gravity of what you did. It, you left a, a full-time career and you went into a new full-time career in a new marriage and uh, basically maybe even worked harder on the trail than you ever did in, in the day job because this is serious preparation, planning, and execution every single day. And you could hedge and manage your risks but there was so much you had no clue what you were walking into. So tell me more about the, the the blood clotting. Was that as a result of this trip? Well, the blood clot occurred in the winter following that tour. And I had this just ache in my knee. And, you know, I work out regularly. and been to the gym and figured, ah, I wonder what I did, you know. And I started taking some ibuprofen because, you know, the doctors always say, well, it just take some ibuprofen, you know. And what ended up happening a couple, maybe a couple weeks after that, when I undressed at night and looked down at my legs, I thought, wow, this leg's pretty big. One of my legs was noticeably larger. And what had happened is the ibuprofen actually had masked the pain. And I had a blood clot that was out of control. The longer mm. you wait, the worse it is. So Debbie and I ended up going to the ER. And the minute we got to that front desk and explained things, and they said, oh, you shouldn't have waited this. You know, It's like, well, I probably wouldn't have if I knew what was going on. But so anyway, that brought about, and to answer your question, whether it had to do with the cycling, I don't think so. I mean, blood clots happen. I mean, it may have been, we had taken a trip to Denver on a plane, sometimes if you're cramped up for many hours in a plane, your knees buckled, it can lock, uh, you know, the blood flow. And in my case, that, that clot went all the way up to my groin from the knee area. It had grown that to that size. And uh, so it, it it probably didn't relate to the exercise. I mean, I was in the best shape of my life coming out of that tour. And uh, it took, uh, you know, once I started to treat a blood clot, you're basically your body has to heal it but they give you a blood thinner so that the clot arrests it it stops the clotting and then your your body works to dissolve that and your body actually grows veins and it blocks off the damaged area it grows new a blood system around that area so pretty fascinating i didn't actually know that that's amazing so i i was on my back i started had to use crutches for probably a month and I was on my back for the better part of probably six 
weeks, six to eight weeks, didn't really do anything until three months thereafter. Took my first bike ride in, I think it was early August. That happened in January, February. So it's mm-hmm. a pretty big deal. But the next summer, we went on another tour. Okay, so I want to I wanna talk about before that, that next tour, because that I can't believe you did it again after the first one. What um, being a newlywed and it being your honeymoon trip, this this thirty five hundred mile trek, what did you learn about each other that you didn't know on that trip? <laughs> the biggest thing we learned is that Debbie's a morning person and I am not. She she that's a pretty big problem. <laughs> she wanted to get going at uh, you know seven or eight in the morning, so that. By the time that the sun is beating down on you at midday and it's 90 to 100 degrees out in the high desert in Montana, maybe you're done and you're pitching your campsite. Oh, no. You know, uh, when, when, when my wife and I met, she was a morning person and I was a night person. And uh, we've been married almost two years now. We've been together a lot longer than that. But now I'm a morning person too. So I'm. Are you? A, did, did, are you a morning person now? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but yeah, by the time we got on our third tour, I think I had, I, I had tried to bend over and meet her, at least halfway, probably more, depending on the day's route, uh, and and get up earlier to do the riding. But uh, oh yeah, there there's some major perks to getting going early. <laughs> And and not as many cars on the road. The sun is lower. That you can stop earlier. And in the morning, what I've noticed when we do road trips, we try to get started as early as possible because by the time noon comes, you can be six hours in. Versus and and, and like whoa, and you're still waking up for most of it, and so you don't even realize how much time you blew just from kind of doing it while you were still slumbering. Yeah. <laughs> So you learned you learned that uh, she's a morning person and you weren't. What else did you learn? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, again, being single for fifty two years, you kind of have your own freedom, your own agenda. You get to do what you want to do whenever you want to do. And Debbie and I came out of that, but we were both so excited. You know, we've both been praying for a spouse. Mm-hmm. Clear, God had brought us together, so that made it easier to understand, you know, the conflicts and work through them. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's an adjustment for sure to be married. But in our case, it was a, it was a welcome adjustment. We'd spent so many years. I mean, when you spend that many years, I mean, there were years and years where I was basically on my knees, crying out to God, having different possible connections with different women that just never worked out, not understanding why. And finally, at some point, I came to accept, well, learn to be content in all things, right? I learned that contentment. And then as I was getting more content with things, I was more prepared to be married, actually. So do you think that the the contentment and acceptance made you ready to actually find Debbie? Because I, I, I've, I've just... I've da- I dated a lot before I met my wife, and it we didn't meet Emily and I until I basically said, "All right, I'm not going to go on any more dates for a while. I'm just going to focus on the part of life I'm in." And and we met basically shortly thereafter, as soon as I made that that decision yeah. to to stop looking and searching necessarily. Yeah, and part of it is you know maturity. I mean, there's a lot of benefits in 
what you learn as you go through life struggles, whether you're single or whatever your struggle is. We all have struggles, whether we're married or not. And those produce spiritual maturity in us. And just, you know, we were both better equipped. I mean, we both had full single lives, which were big blessings to us. Got to do a lot of things we wouldn't have been able to do if we were married. But now, guess what? We get to enjoy the fruits of another lifestyle and the company of one another. I mean, and to see what God has for us to be able to serve him as a couple. So, uh, yeah, and I think he uses spouses, iron sharpens iron, to make us and mold us more into what wants us to be, even as individuals. So, it's all good. It's all part of his plan and his work. And uh, yeah, we bang heads at times, but it's so easy to remember all of those years and all of those prayers and just realize how much better from a personal stamp, companionship standpoint, how much better I have things at this point. Was it difficult to adjust from being one to being two, working towards being one again? It, what what how was that transition to where you basically before could do whatever you wanted whenever you wanted and not have to account for anybody i would say it's ongoing and i i you know even now after you know 11 years uh, but i think we you know we were old enough to know that we need to give one another grace i, I think we still do that maybe sometimes too much i mean to be able to really become one. It it does take a concerted effort, you know, a dying to self, essentially. But it, it's a process because we all have that uh, inborn sin nature to want to do our own thing. And, uh, but this this is helping us die to that. Do you think that the tours helped to expedite the the becoming one of the relationship? I think they did. In some some respects, I looked at Certainly the first one, it it was really, I mean, after all of those years of waiting, it's like God supersized the celebration. It was awesome. I mean, that from that standpoint, it was such a grand time and celebration. Uh, So that I I look at it that way. But also a tour does take a lot of cooperation. If if you're touring with somebody you don't get along with, you're going to have a miserable experience. And that wasn't the case with us. Uh, And, you, you know, you work together. To do, you know, Debbie would be the first to tell you that she'd be lost trying to navigate across the country. And she was very grateful. And she did a lot of the cleaning duties in terms of the, and the bottle prep while I was, you know, looking at routes or, you know, writing a blog or something. So to work cooperatively, and we had a, we had a goal to, you know, the goal was to see how far we could go. I mean, when we first started this, the whole idea was almost like, I, I don't know how far we could get if we went out to Oregon and, started bicycling and we may be out there two weeks and say ah, this isn't, isn't for us oh so you didn't know if you'd actually go across no, no. We, oh. we were like i mean debbie's very athletic and fit i felt like oh my gosh she <laughs> she can do it i don't know if i can <laughs> but, uh, so but anyway uh yeah so the idea was well we can just find an airport but you know both of us I mean, we were pretty excited about it. We'd been both recreational cyclists most of our lives, never anything overnight. But, uh, you know, I had done some century rides, 100 miles in a day. I think she had as well. But so it was really more a a celebration 
and let's see what we can do. We, we stalked ourselves as if we could get all the way across, but we didn't know. I mean, the first day we ended up doing 40 miles and we're like, ah, we got to go 4,000 miles. We don't have that many days. <laughs> she had to be back in school. So, uh, but when we came, we, we bicycled 15 days in a row, which probably we couldn't do now at our age. And probably we shouldn't have done then because uh, you, you need to pace yourself a little and more so. We were developing saddle sore on our rear end. <clears throat> we didn't know what we were doing in terms of taking care of private parts, using the proper medicated balm and whatnot so that we wouldn't get these blisters. So after 15 days, we, 87 miles on that last day, get into Great Falls, Montana. And Debbie had, she had an issue with one of her sores. When we left Missoula, I was like, are you sure? You know, in hindsight, we probably should have sought treatment in Missoula. But we took two days, both long days in the saddle. We landed in Great Falls, Montana, and she got some medical help. And we were there for four or five days thinking, wow, this may be the end. You know, there's an airport here. We can figure out how to get home. But and we rested. And boy, did we <laughs> did we rest. We didn't realize how tired we were. But we we're so, you know, we were just so excited about, you know, being married, but also seeing areas we'd never been. And it was just an incredible experience. So but Debbie started to get better. And the doctor said, yeah, sure, you can go. And once we left Great Fall, it was the East Coast all the way. I mean, we knew and the, the terrain now was flat. You know, we didn't know what, what it was going to be like in the Rocky Mountains. I'd never been in the Rocky Mountains. I said, what? Taking a bicycle through mountains with, you know, you're talking 50 or 60 pounds of gear on your bike. Can't imagine doing that. Well, when once we did it, it wasn't nearly as bad as we suspected it would be. And once we get into the flatlands in the, in the Midwest, it was like, we're, we're booking it. We, had, we, we were on a mission at that That's uh I, that's really surprising that you you basically were just going to go see what you could do. But did you was that the the one was that the ride you raised money? No, that was that was our third tour. Okay, so the so there weren't there you, other people weren't necessarily counting on you to complete that that's race. Correct. So that at least you didn't have the external pressure. Because I was curious about what made it so you wouldn't quit. Because it would have been so easy to, to quit, if, especially if there's no one out there. Like, I ran the Chicago Marathon. Had I not had folks stake my race to raise money for children in Africa for water, I would have quit, and I wouldn't have even gone and done the race, probably. But I raised money. It held me accountable. Throughout my training, I could say, God, this isn't about me. This is about those kids. So I can't quit because... That'd be leaving these kids hanging. And throughout the race, the 26 miles, I just kept repeating that in my head so I wouldn't quit. But having, how did you not quit? It would have been so easy in Missoula or Great Falls to just say, yeah, we did it. We did something amazing here. We're not wired that way. De Debbie, when, when it comes to exercise, I'm telling you, she could exercise all day long. I mean, the, the day we got home on that first tour, we got 
back around two in the morning. She had to go to school the next. She comes home from school. Ah, oh, can't believe it. I wish I was on my bicycle. I mean, she was like, you know, she's she was immediately ready to go on the next tour. And we had met people in Ticonderoga, New York. I remember the story well. Uh, Debbie was talking to this woman outside whose husband was working on the bikes. You know, they, they were another couple. They'd come from California. They're biking east. The woman says, I can't wait to get off this bicycle. And Debbie kind of knew what she was saying, but there was another part of Debbie that said, this is great. You know, no way. <laughs> so, And I'm very, I mean, very task oriented, want to see things through to completion. Uh, and, and, and in my background, there was a time in the 90s when I received a leave of absence from my job. I was kind of getting burned out. They gave me a block of time and I signed up for this long distance bike across the country. So I kind of always had that in my mind as something that, gee, that would be quite an experience. But when I signed up, the, the ride was full. So I was on the waiting list. Well, I never got off the waiting list. So I figured that's okay. I mean, I didn't need to do that. I, you know, Life is good anyway. But so we come around 15 years later, get married. And now God says, go. What, what a blessing. Put that on top as a cherry. And so now you've done it three. You've done three major tours or is there more than three? Uh, we've done three tours. Well, probably we've gone on six. I'd, I'd call them overnight. Three ones that traverse much of the country. The other three were uh, we did a 500 mile loop up in the state of Vermont. We did a loop around Lake Michigan. I think that was over ended up being over a thousand oh. Did you go into the Upper Peninsula of Michigan? Wow. What did you? So did you like? So I'm I'm from Michigan, so I I I know the state very well. And some of my favorite places on Lake Michigan would have to be Petoskey, and then I love Saint Ignace in the Upper Peninsula, and then all the way up to Lake Superior. Um, is 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 beautiful i mean you don't have to go all the way to alaska or canada michigan's got all of that there and it's beautiful and there's nobody it's deserted up in the upper peninsula <laughs> what did you find on that ride what what surprised you about michigan uh well we did a beeline on when we got to the uh the upper peninsula we stayed right on route two and came down into uh, Wisconsin. Uh, time w was a factor, but yeah, I, I thought the uh, I enjoyed the uh, you know, the orchards and whatnot along the lake, you know, in, in Michigan, the western side of Michigan. Yeah, it was no, it was it was good. I think the highlight of that trip for me was uh, riding to right to Lambeau Field and got a <laughs> tour of Lambeau and stayed right there. It was it was a week before training camp actually, but uh, no, Michigan was was very pretty. Uh, state and the routing at times was eh, you know we've had better routing in terms of traffic and whatnot but uh, yeah, it was good a lot of the northern tier routes go through michigan in different ways they might go through the up up or go across the lake by ferry up into canada north of lake erie but when we went across the northern tier we dropped down to iowa across illinois south of chicago and Indiana, and then up to Cleveland. So we missed Michigan on our first trip. We've mm. also been in so, Texas Hill Country is another tour that we did, and it is hilly. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was that was that was just a week long tour. We did that during a March vacation of, from Debbie's school. 
and the there's a number of stories in your book that you found ways to distill lessons from. So if if you're listening to this and you're enjoying these stories, the book chapter after chapter of lessons with stories from these trips, I definitely suggest picking it up. But how did you I'm curious about actually writing the book. You said you were blogging along the way. Is that how you remembered so many of these stories or what was your process for capturing some of that down? That was part of it. Uh, on our third tour, we were trying to raise money. Debbie and I have both been volunteer, what's called hope coaches for an organization called the Hope Line. Uh, their ministry started by Dawson McAllister, uh, who was a youth pastor that turned into a radio show host uh, on Christian radio, and then he went to secular radio. But they basically, a hope coach will deal one-on-one over the internet on a chat with a young person who's struggling with a life issue. And over time, that kind of morphed. It really wasn't just young people. It was about anybody. So you could be dealing with people that have suicidal tendencies or who are depressed, people who cut maybe addiction issues, relationship problems, whatever life throws at them. Uh, So we were raising funds on that tour. And that really motivated us big time to write not just a blog about the travel, but tie it into life and life issues and some of the things that we encountered and and as well as the mission to raise money for the organization and educate people what it did and still mm-hmm. tries to do. So, uh, so that really created uh, not just good content that had a spiritual focus, but we had a lot of people praying for safe passage and for connections with people that were more than just coincident, meaningless chatter. <laughs> and we found yeah. those, definitely found those. And we share a lot of those stories in the book's called Wheels of Wisdom, Life Lessons for the Restless Spirit. So... It's got 52. Uh, they're more than it's, it's a devotional, but the as you know, the entries in there are longer than what you'd find in a typical, you know, daily devotion, maybe maybe twice as long as what you normally find. And then there is a scripture and questions to reflect back uh, to the reader. So the reader has three questions at, at each stop to try to apply what the lesson was in that uh, devotional to their own life. We also, we actually, when we wrote that book, we had 60 and the editors said, well, this is pretty big. <laughs> you had to slim it down. And so we pulled out eight. They wouldn't tell us which ones to pull out. They liked them all. We yanked out eight and put them in a little sampler book, which we call Metaphors in Motion. So that's kind of more of the same. And some of those lessons, there was a little bit of overlap with some of the lessons in Wheels of Wisdom. Yeah, that's always difficult to condense and choose what's going to leave of a finished product like that because it's all you're you're attached to it all. And I I think I've heard stories of prolific authors like Stephen King before they even hand a book to an editor, they chop, you know, a fifth of the book themselves before they even hand it over just because actually in my own writing I'll write my intro and get into my blog post. And then when I finish, almost every time I I cut that first or second paragraph completely out or sometimes move it to the end because now that it's finished, I have such a better way to start that blog. Um, And 
and it's different than what and it, the, the, through the journey of writing it always turns out differently than I originally expected when I start writing on the page and I always laugh in movies they always have a, an author sitting behind a blank white screen thinking about how to the perfect way to start and I'm like that is not how it actually works the way it works is you fill a page with writing and then you cut half of it and then that's what you got you know <laughs> I can relate. Is that what I you, can relate uh, what, very well to what you're saying? Just yesterday, I finally got back into the second novel that I'm working on, and I had to reacquaint myself with what was in there uh, because it's been so long since I touched it. And it was the same issue of wow, I, I really obviously struggling with how to start this, and I had like three different chapters that were all pretty weak attempts at how to start the book so i need to get further into the book and finish it before i can figure out better how to start it because it's so it i've noticed that i i it's so much more interesting to start a story or an article with the middle where it pulls someone into what you're trying to tell them and i think that's what i liked about your book and i didn't actually think of it as sort of like a daily devotional but each story you immediately are like all right what's going to go on here what's happening on this trip and so i thought you did a great job of of making each one interesting and so i'm the way i'm reading the book is just i'm reading a a couple of them every single night and uh and then there's those 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 reflective questions at the end are fantastic because I can just kind of set my brain to be thinking about them while I'm sleeping. And I've always had great luck reading before bed and then letting my subconscious chew on something overnight versus trying to do it while I'm awake. Yeah. It's, it's funny how the mind works uh, when you're sleeping because uh, I've got a novel now that I'm, I'm working on uh, moving toward publication with it. Uh, but a lot of the inspiration of some of the neat components in that novel, I woke up with in the morning. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and I had to pull out the, the drawer to my nightstand, whip out the pad, notepad, and, and, and jot it down before I forgot it, got into my day. But it, it is pretty amazing how God can kind of use that downtime. And when you wake up, there are ideas that, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, I, I've heard some of the, the great thinkers and philosophers and scientists of our age of pre-1900s would do some crazy things to force that type of thought process to the point of like sitting up, propped up on a chair with a pen and paper in their hands with something that's going to roll off their lap and slam onto the floor and wake them up. And then as soon as they're woken up, they write down whatever they were thinking. And it was like their way to connect their subconscious and their conscious minds through that like startled awake process. And uh, it's bizarre, but pretty neat. For me, it works in downtime, taking long walks, taking a shower, driving a car, where I'm just focused on one thing. And I always want to carry, you know, I, I try to carry a pen and paper with me. I keep saying that I'm, I need to invent a, a whiteboard 
in my shower so I could just write down ideas because that's where most of them come in or when you're brushing your teeth. Yeah, <laughs> where do you get your where do your ideas come I, in? I do get some shower ideas for sure. But it, it's amazing how, I mean, the novels I'm working on are, are based on you know, the premises a bicycle tour. So there's mm-hmm. so many, wow, so many rich experiences that we had on our tours that find their way into these characters and into the novels. And I'm also tapping into, you know, chatting once a week on weekends on an online chat service with people who are struggling with life issues. You get a lot of revelation about issues and struggles people have. Uh, so there's no shortage of, you know, and even just reading other material, it's fertilizer for your own ideas. Do you, it, gratitude is, is something I like to talk about. And it, through those chat conversations, do you get your own benefit of gratitude from having the conversations or, or may, maybe gratitude is the wrong word, but yeah, I, I, I recently wrote a post about my mother who passed away 10 years ago in early January. It was kind of the anniversary date of her death. And in that post, uh, I describe about how having handled all these chats over the past decade, people that are struggling with life issues, and many of them young people, really gives me an appreciation and now that she's gone and the older I get, the more I realize, wow, what a blessing she was in my life. So many of these people do not have uh, any kind of solid role model in their upbringing. You know, they may live in a home where it's chaotic. There's a lot of it, where there's always fighting and screaming, maybe alcoholism, uh, just unsta- un- instability in terms of financial problems and unemployment. So, I mean, I-, I was so blessed with a mother who committed her life to the Lord and her children, lost her husband when I was eight. Uh, nine years old, and she never wavered. And, and just, uh, I'm amazed at what she accomplished on the little finances that she had available to her. And just, and extremely grateful to grow up and to be able to watch that, but also to participate in it in terms of learning the value of a dollar and the value of hard work and the value of faith. Is are these conversations that you have? Do are they, are they sort? Do you have? repeat conversation with the same people? Does it kind of become a mentorship in any way? It, it is not designed that way. It's more of a one-off uh, where you try to point them, you try to kind of diffuse the situation, you let them talk. A lot of times just someone being able to talk to somebody and express what's going on inside is healing to some degree. And you try to give them resources of where they can go to get help on their specific issue um, and share the love of Christ with them if, if they're willing to hear it. That's tough to, to, to see kids go through that. And I got a dose of that one time in the church when I went on a mission trip with the youth in my church for a few days. Mm-hmm. And the things they were struggling with and going through as teens things I've never experienced my entire life, they've got a tough life. And these are kids in in a decent area in the church, in a church family, and they're being exposed to things and having to deal with questions and concerns that no child should have to go Absolutely. through. And, and these kids are everywhere. 
and there are neighbors and there are kids and there are nieces and nephews and they need us to step up and and help them. As America continues to drift away from matters of faith, there's a, a growing ignorance of biblical solutions to life's problems. It's unbelievable how some, I mean, many of these people have never heard the gospel message. I mean, we live in America where you can turn the TV on and hear it, but it's, it's really amazing how uh, just sharing, you know, the practical advice that I learned growing up and what I've learned from over the years as a Christian, um, you have a lot to offer people and you try to offer it with giving them you know, respecting their freedom to believe what they want to believe. But as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? <laughs> they usually come in with some pretty weighty problems. And if they shut you down, it's, just, it's a little heartbreaking because you know that uh, the solution to their problem is, you know, in many respects, they're not open to it. Mm-hmm. And it, what are ways that other people can get involved in in helping kids like this, is that pro? Is are there other programs like the one you're talking of that you've been involved yeah, well, with? Well, I'm actually now uh, chatting with a different organization, kind of uh, trying that out because the Hope Line has eliminated their volunteer coaches. They're going to an all-paid. So that was mm. that was a transition that just happened here at the end of the year. So, but I think it's as much as anything, it's maybe an awareness of kind of getting outside of ourselves and being willing to serve in some capacity. Even if it's just staying connected with your neighbors and their families, uh, there's certainly opportunities in the local church to get involved and have a touch, you know, different clubs and activities in the community where you are exposed to young people and minister to them as you get to know them. Uh, but we're, our culture has really become very self-focused. You know, our, our tendency is to be doing our own thing. And we're so busy. I mean, so many of the things with uh, technology and the internet, you know, you and I love them, right? We can do things like this, but they've also had a negative impact socially that in many respects are, we're not good at ma- managing it sometimes so i've found you have to be deliberate to create quality time and meaningful conversation in your life it doesn't happen naturally now because there's always something to entertain us it so you have to put the phone down close the computer sit on your front porch or go to someone's house or set up a date with friends or neighbors you have to go out of your way to do it because it won't happen otherwise and you have to be a little uncomfortable because it's so we're we're conditioned now to be scrolling and watching tv and getting exactly the stimulus that we want but talking with real people in the real world can is sketchy it's a little uncomfortable you don't know what they're going to ask you you don't know what they're going to make you eat or do and it's not comfortable necessarily we have to do it. We have to get out and talk yeah. with people and and put our phones Intentionality down. Intentionality is, is a really good point that you make. Uh, I think in, in terms of the, the discomfort zone, if you will, that's that's real. But let me just say this on that, that re, in that regard. When I first started coaching online, my fear was, what am I going to do if somebody is there and wants to kill himself? It's kind of like panicky. Like, ah, how would I ever handle that? And would I make it worse? Well, you're not going to make it worse unless you tell them, go ahead, do it. I mean, <laughs> if you don't egg them on. But 
But just being open, even just listening, there's such great value in listening, being available to listen to someone talk about what's going on and then to actively prod them, you know, to get deeper into what's bothering them, how help them think through a solution that's going to work for them. So, yeah, there is discomfort. And sometimes, you know, you need to train, you, you know, you need to read things, but be open to being challenged. And then once you challenge and you find where the gaps are, well, that's going to force you to go, you know, do a little homework and think, okay, the next time I get that, this might be a better way to handle it. But my point is that person's going to be better off, even if you're a total novice uh, and you're just trying to listen to them, they're going to be better off for your input into their life than if you hadn't done it. That's that's always motivated me to keep doing this coaching. What motivates me is that if I don't do this, there's going to be people out there that are going to go without help. There's no one else doing this. So, yeah, I'm, I'm limited in what I can offer a stranger. Uh, I've got my issues and my own limitations, but it's going to be better if I'm there for someone than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really neat that you do that and um that you've been doing it for such a long time and continue to look for opportunities to serve in that way um i do want to kind of switch gears and talk about if someone's listening to this and they want some life experience like you have gained through these tours how would you suggest they maybe it's not even a bike tour but how would you suggest they get in touch with themselves to get on an adventure or a challenge in some way to get uncomfortable? Uh, I think that takes a little bit of introspection. And as you point out, time away from the distractions of life, maybe the addictions, but just as, you know, there's a verse in the Bible, be still and know that I am God. Just to be still and allow God to pull out of you what what are those dreams and aspiration, things that you would like to do. Maybe you lack the confidence to do them or the opportunity, but don't let the dream die and you know, kind of foster the dream and then explore ways to pursue the dream. So as you know, as I related, I at one point thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to cycle across the country? Well, that was a couple decades or so before I actually ended up doing it. Figured I'd never end up, but I still had that in my head at the right time god brought it forth and blessed it more than i could have imagined can you imagine going on a tour as a single guy not knowing the other people on the tour and then just going out and back rushing going back to work compared to spending a honeymoon with my wife on a bicycle there's no comparison to it it's better than you could have ever have planned it i it reminds me of a, a dream when i was a kid i had fighter jet posters all over my walls, and um, my uncle was in the Navy, and my dad went on what they call a, t- a tiger tour, where you get, this was pre-2001, but family members of of, of Navy uh, members could go out on the carrier and go on a brief little trip, and he brought back this autographed Top Gun hat from fighter jet pilots, and I never did that, and I put it away, and it was just some childhood fantasy. Now, I'm in my 30s, and I have my own businesses and a lot of flexibility. And that dream has been in me still, forgotten about for decades. And now I'm going to flight school and I'm getting my pilot's license. And it was just there in me, planted for decades, sitting there. And I don't know whim, I went to a, a, a flight school and, and did a tour. 
and then went up in a plane and was handed a stick. And I go, this is, this is, this is amazing. And I just kept pursuing it and pursuing it and pursuing it. And now I'm, I'm, uh, a couple months away from, from having a pilot's license. And so my thought is we all have these things inside of us, these, 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 these adventures, but what you said of pulling it out is that's the key, the stillness, the quiet, eliminate all the distractions and go to a bench in a park without your phone and just sit there quietly. It might feel like you're a lunatic because like who does that nowadays, <laughs> but it's so good for you and do it over and over and over again, different places, different ways. And, and remember who you were when you were a kid. I love that. And people and, pe- and people <clears throat> and you can't pull it off on your own. I mean, people are there to help you. You're, you're getting the training you need. Uh, and the encouragement from some friends in my life that said, you have to do this now, James, you might not get another chance to do it. Realizing that because at first it's like, oh, yeah, I have this interest. I, I want to do it maybe someday. And like, you better do it now. Life's only going to get more complicated. Yeah. And they identify from your words that this dream is bigger than you even realize that it is sometimes. Yeah. And how would I ever have been able to go across the country several times if I were still changed to the desk of that wonderful job I had for 26 years? Yep. So then we go full so circle with to, that. From Sometimes the be- you have to let go for God to bring you to another place. We have so much in common uh, from my backstory that you don't know that is so similar and just so much of just following our heart into uncomfortable situations and being wowed at how much joy there can be in the unknown. And so my thought for people listening is you've got two people here who have done some crazy things that other people are shocked at sometimes and it a lot it brought so much joy and love into our life and uh yeah i have i I have two interesting questions before we wrap up and then you can tell us all about what you're working on and how we can support you and how we can learn more about you but one is finding hotels is really hard how do you find good hotels while or decent hotels or safe hotels? Because I always really struggle and I have to go to name brand places. Who said you needed a good motel? <laughs> sometimes so sometimes I'm just... <laughs> any motel is a good motel. <laughs> uh, compared to, to sleeping on the asphalt, I guess. <laughs> well, going back to the part of, you know, sometimes there, there's a lesson in, the, it's the first lesson in metaphors. It's called over-preparing and underperforming. Sometimes you just have to do it. And in our case, that's what we were doing when we, you know, again, planning a wedding and a long-distance bicycle tour in the space of six weeks uh, from scratch. Didn't have any gear, didn't know we were going to get married. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we, we had all this gear that, you know, the, the night before we were to go on the plane, I was trying to set up a netbook computer <laughs> so we could have something to communicate with on the road. Once we got out and we started uh, riding, the people from my, my uh, former employer had bought me 
a bicycling garment. <clears throat> I thought, wow, this is great. So we did that whole trip and I, I'm going on the trip. What is this garment? I mean, it, yeah, it, it tracks the stats great and shows me where I've been, but is there something else it can do for me? So fast forward, we get done with the trip and wrap everything up. And that, that winter, I'm looking through some of the gear and I look into the box for this garment and there's a chip in the box. I said, what's this chip? <laughs> It was all of the resources in North America, all of the, the whole mapping and everything was supposed to go in the garment. And once you have it in the garment, it pulls up all of the different areas that you can stay at, like all the motels on your route. It'll navigate right to them. <laughs> so it became, Imagine it became that. easier to navigate on the second and third trip as opposed to the first one. Now that I had everything uh, that I should have had, but. We were just, it was so crazy. There was so much happening and so little time that, you know, but you can't, you can't wait forever with things. So, uh, but the other- that, that little Garmin got you in trouble sometimes. I think <laughs> you might've relied on it too much on some of those trips where you're like, I think I, the map tells me to go here, but the Garmin's telling me to go there. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. You must be talking about Kentucky. I'm. I was actually thinking about when you went. When you went, I think you were in South Carolina, and you were following it, and you went down and down and down and down and down, and you got into some field, and there was no exit. Yeah. There was an exit, but you had to go through a river. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was Kentucky. Oh, it was yeah. Kentucky. Okay, uh, but, but no, really, the the motel situation. Uh, the maps that we use from Adventure Cycling Association have resources on them, and they'll show you actually where the stops are, whether they're campgrounds or motels or bed and breakfast, hostels, whatever. So you can use that. You know, that's the, one of the primary resources we use <clears throat> in addition to now the Garmin information. And most people now are, I think, you know, we're talking 10, 12 years ago, uh, the people now are using Google to do their, just their phones to do their navigation on a bicycle tour. I mean, we had, mm -hmm. when we lived in Massachusetts, uh, we had a young student who was, she was a music student at one of the music schools in uh, Boston. <laughs> and she wanted to do a bicycle tour to New York City. And she was using her phone, but I, I couldn't believe, talk about unprepared. <laughs> we thought we were unprepared. But she used that phone and went all the way into the heart of New York City, which I don't think I would have had the guts to do. Uh, but people are doing it. That's really neat. Yeah. And, there, and biking or flying may not be your idea of an adventure, but there's surely an adventure seated in all of us. And it's just about saying yes. And as I'm an analytical person, and I know that uh, that Tim's an analytical person, and uh, sometimes you're not going to be able to plan at all and know everything that's going to happen, and you have to be okay. And that's where the faith comes in. And that's where the growth really happens. If you knew everything that could happen, it's not really an adventure anymore. The whole point of the adventure is to walk into the unknown and be challenged. And, uh, and and Tim is doing that in, in ways that I would never have the guts to do. 
And that's why I brought him on to hope that some of that would rub off on me because I'm such a planner and analytical person that I almost don't do anything unless I'm surefire guaranteed it will succeed. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I know that so many of the people I look up to, the dreamers, the ideas they have are almost guaranteed to fail, but they do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're kindred spirits, I can tell. And uh, my last thing, are you still playing chess? Absolutely. I, I was waiting for you to bring you, that up. So you're a chess expert, right? Well, I was until uh, they sicked me on a bunch of young people at, in a fast tournament time limit up here in Nashville. <laughs> I, did, I proceeded to give away more rating points than I, I, I wanted to, for sure. But uh, yeah, oh, that was no. over 30 years uh, above 2000. Um played in not a lot of tournaments a lot when i was younger but periodically we'll drop into a tournament kind of missing the activity since covid's taken hold but i'll play online at chess.com just to keep the skills active and uh mm -hmm. oh it's yeah I, I love chess and uh it's meant a lot to me over the years it's such a fun game and i learned it must have been when I was 10 years old, I played a couple games with a friend and never played again. It was another one of those things that was seated inside of me as a child and I forgot about for 30 years, or not 30 years, I guess it would have been 20 years. And then maybe three years ago, I started playing again and was obsessed and absolutely love it. And I play every single day and I've had coaches and I've taken lessons and I've read books and I've done tournaments and it's so much fun. And again, I didn't realize this until just now. It was another thing that was planted inside of me at a young age, a passion that I forgot about. Mm. And it's never too late to to reignite one of those passions. Yeah. And with the Internet today, I mean, chess in the Internet was a marriage made in heaven. I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah. you, you look at some of the ratings on some of these young students i mean I'm, I'm not talking high school i'm talking elementary school seven and eight years old and 2100 yeah. rated i mean you've got access to everything to make you a great player uh but warning it is a big time commitment or a time drain so you have to spend your time wisely on it but uh yeah i i back in the I think it was the 2000s. I ended up playing an 11-year-old in a tournament in Massachusetts, and he sac sacrificed a rook and ended up mating me. I mean, it was just, oh, wow. And he was rated higher than I was at the time. It's like, wow, this is unreal. And now it's even it's yeah. even more so. I mean, here in Nashville, back in 2017, they had what they call the Super Nationals. It's a... Uh, now, it's a scholastic tournament that's pulling kids from all over the country. They had it at the big Opryland Hotel outside of Nashville. And I went up to watch that, and I could not believe the strength in those kids. And I mean, you're talking hundreds, probably thousands of kids at that event. And high, high ratings, and it is incredible to watch. And it takes a lot of work to become skilled at chess. And the movie, the TV show, The Queen's Gambit, 
didn't do a great job representing how difficult it is to actually become good. So these kids who are 9 and 10 and 11, 12 years old at these levels of chess, they've dedicated thousands and thousands and thousands of hours already into it. And it's so impressive. Yeah. It's so cool. But I've been able to to uh, see over the years some pretty uh, strong players. It was uh, back in 1988, there was an event called the World Chess Festival in St. John, New Brunswick. And that was only three hours or so away from where I lived in Bangor, Maine. And they had, it was a month-long event, and they were playing candidate matches there to determine who would challenge Kasparov for the world championship. And um, we went over to a weekend event, a couple of us, and just phenomenal to see, you know. uh, Mikhail Tal was a guy that was a contemporary with Bobby Fischer. And he was there, and he actually came up to one of my games I was playing. You know, I was just in this little class tournament, you know, expert class, and he's obviously playing in the open tournament. And uh, he came over and watched my game for a while. <laughs> I'm thinking, what does he see here, here in this game that, uh, you know, he's, he's a guy that uh, had a wild, wild style of play, sacrificing pieces left and right, and uh, just a brilliant guy. He was a world champion, I believe, at one point. Uh, but he was, he, he kind of looked gnarly. He looked like he had a hard life. I don't know if he was, had a problem with alcohol or, or what he had, but, um, but it was, you know, just to, be able to watch players like that. John Curdo, he was kind of a regional player who who became nationally known when he became a senior national champion. He's from the state of Massachusetts. Uh, when Debbie and I married, I lived in Mass for five years and went to just a real small tournament. And John Curdo was in the tournament at age 80, whatever. I played him actually in a game. I had an advantage and I ended up losing the game. But, uh, you know, he, he's a guy that made a living out of playing chess. Uh, hmm. Not very many people can do that, but he found out ways to do it. He was going to tournaments and he was, he was, he was a very strong player, but he wasn't, you know, of the caliber that, you know, he, he, was, he was probably rated 2400-ish at one point in time, but uh, he wasn't traveling the international circuits like... Uh, you know, the big time players are. Yeah. It's, it's such a fun game and it's not something you can ever master and perfect. It's something you can work on the rest of your life every day you have, and you still won't learn at all. And you'll still be surprised by somebody when you play. And that's what gives me joy in it is it's the, the, the challenge of, of learning something that has infinite growth potential. Yeah. It, I played in a tournament in New York city when I went one time, I went down for a seminar for work at the New York mercantile exchange. And I went early and played in a weekend tournament. It was just in this little small hotel room in uh, right across from Penn station. (laughs) Joel Benjamin was one of the guys in the tournament. Other players, I can't remember their names, but at the time they were prominent names and, you know, I'm, I'm in the same room with these guys playing in the same class tournament. 
And the, at the end of that tournament, there was a tie, and the championship was determined by a speed chess game. And I was, you know, it was just a group of us standing, watching them play a five-minute game, and that was mind-boggling to see the things they were seeing and how fast they were moving the pieces. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. So it, it's... It, it kind of hurts your confidence, doesn't it? You go, okay, I will never be that good, no matter what I do. I know that. I just know yeah, it. There, there's, a, there's a different level of thinking there and a speed at which one thinks that uh, is pretty mind-boggling. Yeah. And now you can watch these masters, grandmasters, international masters, FIDE masters online playing and they commentate on their moves live of what they're thinking and how they're thinking and why they're thinking. And it is so much fun to watch them. I had to stop because I was spending so much time just watching other people play chess. And, uh, but it's so, it's so amazing that we can do that. Like we can watch the Bobby Fishers online talking like Magnus Carlson does live. It's um, unbelievable. So how are you playing your chess daily? Are you playing on chess.com or? I play on leadchess.org, and I find that it's a cleaner interface and a lot smoother and all free and open source. And, um, yeah, when, once we're done recording, I'd be happy to play a game if you've got an extra couple minutes. I'd love to play <laughs> <Okay>. a game. <laughs> but uh, last thing is would be what are you up to and, and, and how can we find more about you and support what you're doing because we'd love to. Okay. I appreciate that. And I appreciate this interview. This has really been enjoyable. I was looking forward to this. Um, my website now just developed a new one for me as a novelist. It's timbishopwrites.com. I also have a website as a publisher called openroadpress.com. That's the imprint under which we've published uh, Wheels of Wisdom, which is the book that you've been reading and talking about. Uh, Two Are Better, Midlife Newlyweds, Bicycle Coast to Coast is uh, the first book that Debbie and I have written, and uh, that's got a full-color interior and then talks about how God brought us together in marriage and our first journey across the country by bicycle. I've written a book called Hedging Demystified, uh, which talks about using derivatives for uh, hedging price risk. But now I'm moving over to the fiction realm. And boy, when I did that, I thought, wow, boy, there's a lot I don't know about writing <laughs> <laughs> and it's been really fascinating to to grow and learn more. And uh, I had a developmental edit done, boy, it might be three years ago now, two or three. And I've been trying to pitch the book to traditional publishers uh, and have been, at this point, uh, unsuccessful and ready to pivot now to self-publish the book. But I've got a an engagement coming up with an editor who has edited a lot of traditionally published Christian books. So I'm in good hands there. And uh, so we'll proceed to publish that. Uh, the the uh, pitch line would be uh, a 60-year-old newly unemployed widower embarks on an epic bicycling journey to figure out whether life is still worth living. So mm. it, it marries the experiences that I bring from a touring standpoint, as well as the coaching standpoint. 
uh, into some life issues. And it's got elements of suspense for sure. Uh, it's a, it's got the travel, you know, piece of it, you know, what you'll see each and every day type thing, the people you meet. But there's more story than that. Uh, there's a suspense story. There's an encounter with people who uh, are religious, but may, may not really know Christ. Uh, there's an encounter with people there who do know Christ. And this man's struggle of the elements of faith and just how he grapples with it. So he hmm. takes a gun on board. Let me just throw that in there. <laughs> wow. What, that's, that's how you should start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's your intro right there, because that makes you go, wait, I need to hear more about this. And uh, that's really cool. Well, that uh, I really look f- forward to this conversation as well. And I'm, and I'm so grateful you came let, on and, and let chatted. Me throw, excuse and, me. Uh, let me throw in my, yeah. my Twitter handle is uh, Tim Bishop four. Uh, I post there fairly regularly. I, I, I also post articles on cbn.com. Uh, devotional is pretty much out there in their spiritual life section. If you go to my website, you'll see these these connections. And also my uh, handle on Twitter, which is, I think is how we connect, James, uh, was Bikers Bishop. What's Tim Bishop for? It's not Twitter. It's, is that Instagram? Tim Bishop or what? for is Twitter. Instagram okay. is Bikers Bishop. Bikers Bishop. Okay. I'll put notes with links to everything we talked about from this episode over at quandall.com slash bishop. That's quandall.com slash bishop. And I'll link to your social media accounts, your books, your websites, and um, some of the other things like the Hope Line and the Adventure of Cycling Association and um, everything else we talked about on, 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 on for this episode. But this was so much fun. And uh, I'll definitely have you back once you do your next book and we can continue our conversation on chess and adventures. And I'm sure you're going to be up to some more exciting and fun things in the meantime. Appreciate that. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.